for this morning is Matthew 5, 17 through 20. Don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teach, but whoever does and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom. my family and miss being here. Thank you for your prayers and uh, doing well. Thankful to God and the goal for this year, 2020, no surgeries. No, no. <laughs> I'm too young for that or I tell myself uh, that very thing. You know, in the course of life, <clears throat> you have conversations with many people. Most of those will be on a fairly superficial level. They can be about if you're a guy about sports or hunting or fishing or about your work with ladies, you have a lot of conversations. And sometimes you'll get into more of the... Are you laughing at? <laughs> I didn't go there, did I? No. <clears throat> uh, you'll have more significant conversations about life, about the meaning of life, about eternal life. You say, well, that's what you do because you're a pastor, that you, you get to those issues. And there's a reason that I do... I think God, in, in my own personal experience, moved me to really care significantly about heaven and about eternal life. When, when I was 18, two of my closest friends died within a few weeks, one in a car accident and the other by suicide. And I knew about heaven and about eternal life and about John 3.16. I never told them. I never told them. And that really rocked my world and changed really the course of my life. And so I will ask a person from time to time, I know it is a bit personal, but to ask them, do you know for sure if you were to die today, did you go to heaven? And most of the time people will answer by saying, well, I hope so. I think so. I'm not sure. And I, and I like to say, I've got some good news for you. <laughs> I've got some good news. That God says you can know for sure. 100% sure. Isn't that great news? You can know that you have eternal life. A second question that I will often ask is if you were to die and to stand before God, which is a, a bit of a sobering thought, <laughs> And he would ask you, why should, I, why should I allow you into my heaven? What would you say? And, and the typical response to that is usually, oh, wow, <laughs> I don't know. And uh, so I ask, well, what do you think you might say? And I get a lot of answers. And, and typically people will say, well, I've 
tried to live a good life. I've tried to do the best I could and, and, and on. And I was trying to think of a way to, to introduce this message. This is, we're jumping back into the Sermon on the Mount, which is the greatest sermon ever preached. Not that I'm preaching it, but that Jesus preached this sermon. We're jumping back into this, and, and I thought, what, how could I describe this in modern terms? And, and one of our uh, loving church members sent this to me yesterday, which I thought was pretty profound, out of the New York Times. One of our uh, candidates running for president uh, was quoted in saying, I am telling you, if there is a God, when I get to heaven, I'm not stopping to be interviewed. I'm heading straight in. I've earned my place in heaven. It's not even close. Now, <clears throat> this person, and I'm not picking on that, it's, it's, it's a, probably a typical response. Smart, well-educated, wealthy, influential, uh, no doubt very self-confident. <laughs> And that's an answer. And this person doesn't even know if they believe in God, but, but people do think about this, about eternal life and about morality, about right and wrong. In the context of this sermon, Jesus is on a hillside overlooking the Sea of Galilee with his disciples and others of the culture that are listening to him speak. And they're also the religious leaders of his time. Uh, most prominent of those would be your scribes and the Pharisees. And for the scribes and the Pharisees, the elephant in the room really is this. But what about the law? Because Jesus seems to be a lawbreaker in their minds. He's a lawbreaker. He does not do things the way they think they ought to be done. And, and it's, it's interesting how... From this point, from verse 17 on through the next several sections we're going to go through, we'll find this phrase repeated. You have heard it said, but I say to you. <laughs> In other words, you have, you have heard this said before, <clears throat> but I am saying to you. And it's not that they heard it wrong, but they didn't really understand it. And the context of this is really speaking about what is the standard or the level for righteousness. When we talk about God's law, the rules to live by, what must be met? And that is really the context. And when I, I think back to the first time I was going out for a PE class at our high school in Sonoma, California, and we went out, and there was a high jump pit. <clears throat> and I'd, I'd been running track for a few years, and, of course, I'd play just about any sport there is just for fun. But I saw this high jump pit, and there was a, there was a bar, a bar, and there were what you call on the side a standard, and then there was a, a pit uh, that you, you hope to land in if you jump over, <laughs> that you land on, on what's soft. And we had for our PE class the, the exercise of going in there and jumping. I don't know if it was probably four feet, four and a half feet. And... It was kind of fun, and I thought, I, th this is, I can do pretty well at this. And once I figured out that I could, I could jump, I know it's hard to imagine right now, so don't strain your brain too hard on it, on, on carrying this through. Um, <clears throat> but uh, I thought, I, I, could, I could work on this. And so that, that spring, when I went out for track, I decided I'm also going to do the high jump. And so I kept on working on form and on exercise and all of these things, and I think I started off at with five feet, and which is pretty high when you're going to jump, jump over it. And then 
work up to 5'2 and to 5'4, and I'd be in the gym working out. I'd be running and jumping and reading books on this and listening to my coach. And by the time I was getting to the end of my high school experience, I was able to jump about 6'2 most, at most meets. And uh, somewhere between 6'1 and 6'2, it was pretty consistent that I'd be able to jump. And that was the best in our high school, and it, and it was enough to place in most of the uh, head-to-head meets that we had in the Northern California. So that, um, the, the end of that track season, which is just before, um, this is actually right before my junior year, <clears throat> end of my junior year when I did this, but uh, we, I got invited to compete at the Northern, the regional California meet, which was all of that of Northern California. <clears throat> and so I went there, I was running a few events, and uh, I was feeling actually pretty good about <clears throat> my skills. You know, I mean, I was better than anybody in high school, and, and I was jumping pretty well, I was getting better, but there, there's a limit. I knew I had a limit. <clears throat> so I get to the warm-ups at the uh, regional meet, and uh, a bunch of other guys are there. Most of them are taller than I am, and I thought, well, yeah, that's okay. They probably can't jump as high, and, uh, but <clears throat> they, they were starting to warm up. And so they put the, put the standards there, the, the bar, and they set the bar to warm up higher than I'd ever jumped in my life. And it completely psyched me out. So I'm thinking, and they, they, when they ask the question, where do you want to start? Where do we start? Because you could, you could elect to start anywhere you wanted to. What am I going to say? <laughs> I want to start lower than what you were warming up at, and I, and I completely... I missed my first three jumps. I think I said, well, yeah, we'll start at 6-2. And I thought, I, I was so psyched out by then. And I think those guys ended up jumping close to seven feet um, in that tournament. And I realized how my bubble was just com- completely and absolutely burst. But I think of the standards, and I think of the bar to achieve. In a spiritual sense, what is the bar the standard that God expects you to meet. And it's interesting because we read the very last verse of 17 to 20. It says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never get in to the kingdom of heaven. Now, this was shocking to these people. I mean, they were already probably discouraged that, you know what, my life is a mess. I remember asking the guy last spring, <clears throat> I said, if you were to stand before God and you were saying, why should I let you into my heaven, what would you say? And he, he had some, I can't repeat it. <clears throat> and I thought, yeah, that's the way most people think. I'm, I'm toast, I'm done. I mean, I know that I'm a sinner. But he said, your righteousness has got to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. And, and these people were like the model citizens. They didn't do anything wrong. So he's basically saying, that's impossible. Now, if you're a scribe and a Pharisee, they're probably saying, hey, yeah, yeah, you know what? He just compared us. And typically, that's what we do. We would say, well, I, I, if the Lord said, why should I let you into heaven? I'd first maybe compare internally my good and my bad. I think maybe I've done more good things. Uh, I don't know if that's true or not. <laughs> uh, I've done more good than I've done bad. I compare that way. Or I find uh, other people and say, well, I compare myself to others. And um, I look pretty good. If you get in the right crowd, you know, you can compare yourself to anything and and make yourself feel good. But here's what he says. I'm I'm comparing all of you, 
It has to exceed. It ha- and, and, and if the Pharisees were to stop and think about this, they are not the standard to be measured by. You don't compare to them because he said it must exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. Well, if you go to the very last verse of chapter 5, and this is, this is uh, still in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, Here's, he gives the standard. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Well, <laughs> so basically what he's saying is it is impossible. Because your righteousness, if you're going to compare, if you want to compare, compare yourself to God. Because you have to be have the same righteous standard as God has. So what he is saying, to, and this is why it's so shocking when people are wanting to know. The Pharisees love to hear this because it just makes them feel good when they start comparing themselves to other people. But there's a place that he's trying to go, and I think this is really powerful of what, what uh, Jesus is doing in this message. And, and I hope that this would be an encouragement to you. Let's, let's look at what he says. In verse 17, he begins, and this is really our, our key verse that we'll look at, when he says, don't think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. And the prophets were, the law was the, the written word of God that they had. And the prophets were the ones that would speak the words of God. He said, I did not come to abolish this, but to fulfill. It's his statement. So when he talks about the law, what does he mean, law? Law. In a general sense, for most of us, we feel like it's a speed limit. <laughs> and uh, there are certain laws that, that govern us, and we're glad. In fact, I think we probably uh, are thankful for laws. Usually we like making our own laws and don't like laws put on us. But laws are standards. This, these are the standards. And generally, uh, these are in every kind of society. But biblically, when, when we have reference to in Scripture the law, we're, we're typically speaking of the Word of God, God's, God's words, God's words that He communicates to us, or God's standard. This is truth that He communicates to us. But in the, for the Jew, uh, the law meant three things uh, specifically. One was the moral law. Then there was the ceremonial law, which were all the sacrifices they were to perform. And then you had the judicial law. So you had the moral law, which we, we think of, first thing that comes to our mind is the Ten Commandments, uh, which, which were given by God to Moses and given to the people. And these are the standards of morality that I'm giving to you. And then realizing that they had sinned and needed to have sacrifices to atone for their sins, there was also ceremonial law. So you have a, a list of, and you go through the Old Testament, and you say, what does all this mean? What does all this mean? Uh, well, you're going to see in this sermon what it all meant. Because you ever get bogged down in Leviticus? Any of you do that? I mean, I'll start through Gen- Genesis. Man, that's great. Nexus, that's great. And I'm getting into Leviticus. Oh, man, <clears throat> they're killing these birds, and then they're killing this calf, and they're shedding the, what, what is all this about? Well, we're going to see. Not going to see all this morning, but but you'll see as Jesus unfolds this and says, "I am the fulfillment of the law." So the law is God's standard. Why did He give it? Why did God give His law to us? I'm glad you asked that question because my answer 
is our fighter verse for next week. And this is what it is, Deuteronomy 10, 12, and 13. Here's what it says. It says, And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you? So we're talking about requirement, except, it says, He's not really asking anything else except to fear the Lord your God. Let me just make a comment on that. To fear the Lord doesn't just mean to shake in your boots and to be afraid of God, but it, ha- it means to have a reverential awe of who He is, to have, have, have a holy respect for who He is. So the Lord says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to have a reverential awe, and the way that you show that is by walking in all His ways. So what are the ways of God? The ways that He has instructed us through the Scripture, I want you to walk in these ways. This is how you show reverence to my word by obedience. And then he says, love him. Love him. Now, <clears throat> this is really an interesting comment because we're going we're gonna to find that the heart is where, where Jesus goes. The Pharisees were famous for externalism. They look good. Um, they, they had good image management, I would say that. <laughs> you know, they, they, they knew how to look good and to perform. It was, it was a um, performance-based and image management type of religion for them. But Jesus saw through all of it. In fact, later on, he, he'll say that, <clears throat> that the outside of your cup is, is clean, but the inside is completely corrupt. That would, that would describe them. So he, he talks about the heart. He always gets to the heart. And, and to worship the Lord your God, that means with all your heart and with all your soul. In other words, ascribing that value to him. And then he says, keep the commands and statutes I am giving you today. And what are the last four words? For your own good. For your own good. You ever have your parents say that to you? <laughs> this is for your good. This is for your good. I am giving you the law for your good. Now, right now, I'm not feeling too good (laughs) because the law is bringing some level of, of conviction. Adam and Eve, when they were created and put on the earth, had this had this law within them. But as they sinned and drifted from God, God came back with putting it in in writing and giving it to them. And so what the law that these uh, Jews had was uh, the Hebrew, written in Hebrew, and then translated into uh, Greek, which was the common written language all over the world. And that was called the Septuagint. But they had these laws, and all of these laws which seem to weigh heavy on us, he says, are for your good. So what did the law do? And I, and I think that when I think about the, the, <clears throat> the law of God, the word of God, what does it do? And I'm, I'm going to look at this in a, in a positive sense and then in a negative sense. First of all, in a positive sense, it tells me everything I need, need to know about God. Uh, it is truth. <clears throat> it shows me the way. It, it, it teaches me about life. It talks about uh, origins. It talks about purpose in life. It talks about the future. It gives me all of the information that I need. Paul says this all of the information that I need to to live in this world. And he he makes it very clear what he expects. And so 
There are many, I could go on and on about the blessings that come from the Word. But there's also a, a negative sense that it exposes our condition. While it reveals the great character of God and all that truth, it also exposes my condition. So here's what the law basically says to me. Matt, you're a sinner and you're going to die. Now, there are all kinds of sinners. Uh, And Jesus goes through this. There are, you know, the repulsive sinners like we all say, I would never do that. Are there people like that? You say, I would never do that. Well, you probably could. And given circumstances, you probably could. So those are the repulsive sinners. And uh, you also have the self-righteous sinners. That would be you uh, and me. <laughs> and then you have, you have very religious sinners, which are the, the scribes and Pharisees. But no one escapes the, the truth that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The glory of God is a standard. It is his righteousness. And so the negative impact is upon me that I'm a sinner, that that is the truth, I have sinned, and it exposes my sin, the more I, the, the, when I read the word, it shows me where I've sinned, and I'm going to die as a result of my sins. In fact, in James, who is the pastor in, in Jerusalem, he said, if you offend in every, uh, if, you, if, you're, if you don't offend in every point, but guilty of one point, only one thing, you, you've broken the entire law. And so that's where we are. So the law does many things. It teaches us, guides us, instructs us. It shows us the glory of God, gives us everything we know. It shows us we're sinners. But here's what the law cannot do. It cannot solve your problem. All of the law cannot cure you of your sin or the fact that someday you're going to die. And this is why the law in and of itself. Now, Jesus is not saying the law is not worthless. It's, it's accomplishing some purpose. But it is unable. So I wrote it down this way. What the law cannot do, it is unable to give you the ability to meet the standard. The law does not give you the ability to meet the standard. When my nephew, uh, my sister's son, was seven, he was diagnosed with leukemia. And I still remember when that happened, it's a number of years ago now, but how devastating that was. And they fortunately, they, were, they lived in Virginia, and they were able to uh, get him into Duke University where they had an incredible medical center. And when I, I remember the whole process of that. Of, the first is the diagnosis of, you know, the disease. I remember the, the uh, it was like acute lymphoblastic uh, Leukemia. I'm not probably getting some of that wrong, but diagnosing and here's what's normal, and here's what's happened, and here's what and you have all this information. But all all of that information didn't cure him. You know, of all all the things that they could do, all of the knowledge and all the equipment they had was unable to cure him. He had to get a bone marrow transplant. Uh, which he which he did, and he did survive, and he's living, he's in his 30s today. He's not been without challenges with that. But I think of this is that with, with a doctor, when you think about a, uh, the law, it's like a doctor that diagnoses you with an incurable disease. Is the doctor bad? 
He's, he's not bad. He, he gave you some bad news, but, but he's not evil. And that's why Jesus is saying, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not coming to abolish the law. I'm not saying the, the law is not evil. The law is not bad. The law is good and righteous and pure. But the law is incapable of solving our two biggest problems. Those problems being we are sinners, we can't change that, and we're going to die. We can't change that. So Christ makes this statement, I've come to fulfill the law. How did he do that? How, how does Christ fulfill the law? And when you look at verse 17, this is his in, incredible statement. Now the Jews were so frustrated with him <clears throat> because... As he said I, about him, it is said, he fulfilled all righteousness. In other words, every command that is in this book, Jesus kept. I mean, he was perfect. He fulfilled all righteousness. But he didn't obey the Pharisees' rules. They had some extras. <laughs> in fact, you know, people that love rules like to make extra rules, and, and, and they had what they called oral tradition. And one of those was, you got to wash your hands before you eat. And it wasn't like we wash our hands before we eat. It was, it was a religious ceremony. But it was something they made up. It wasn't in the scripture. And so Jesus didn't do it. <laughs> he, he may have done it sometimes, but, but it had just bothered them. They were so upset to see that he was not keeping their traditions, their own laws. And, and so some people, um, they thought, well, you know what, well, we just need a new system. Uh, we, we, we can't, we cannot do this. In other words, you, you set the bar so high, it's impossible. Obviously, it's impossible because you said we've got to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees. They've got to exceed that righteousness, and, and then we have to be perfect. Well, if, if we can't meet the standard, I used to used to say this, when all else fails, lower your standards. <laughs> uh, but he did not do that. Um, he, did not, he did not say, you know what, this whole law thing, being righteous by the law is not work, working, so um, we're just going to do a grace thing. Out with the law and in with grace. He didn't say that either. And I think it's really important that we understand that because typically within... Christian circles, we think, you know, that the whole law, <laughs> no one can do it, so we just got to throw that whole thing out and, and not be talking about law, and we just have, God's merciful and gracious, and he just wants to save us, and so he's just going to give us eternal life, even though we don't deserve it. And he didn't do that either. It says he fulfilled the law, meaning every righteous demand that was put on mankind, he kept perfectly. He fulfilled every part of the law. It was not lowered. It was not abolished. And even to the smallest letter. Do you notice where it says here to the, uh, in verse 18, it says, For I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away until the law, until all things are accomplished. If you read in the old King James, it says, Not one jot or tittle. I remember that. Um, a jot or a tittle, it was in the Hebrew alphabet, was the smallest letter 
and the smallest stroke. And a scribe, they kind of worked with, you hear the scribes and the Pharisees. The Pharisees were the religious leaders. The scribes were, they were held up and they, they'd do this all day. <laughs> they would be copying, because they didn't have printing presses, they would be copying the scriptures, the law. That's what they did, their whole life was that. And it was painstaking, it was exact. And, and so with all the law, Jesus is saying not one part of the law is going to be put away until everything is fulfilled. And so what Jesus did is when he fulfilled all righteousness, he kept all the law of God. He was born, uh, born in Bethlehem, grew up in Nazareth, and he never sinned. He kept every righteous demand of God. That's amazing. So the question is, what did he do with that? Because he did that, so people say, well, you know what? That's what we needed. We needed an example. And Jesus was a great example. But that's not why he came. He did not come to be an example. This is how you do it. There are two things that I think are significant. One is that he made himself a substitutionary atonement. In other words, when I was a sinner... I've sinned, I can't meet the standard, never will, and I'm going to die. And that's the consequence. That When you break that law, when you break the law and you sin, the consequence is death. That's what God says. That the substitutionary atonement was that since he had not sinned, he offers to take my place. He offers to step in the place of Matt Olson, be there, and and take the entire wrath of God upon that sin for me. That's a pretty amazing thought. But not only for Matt, but for everyone in the world, for all time, who will believe on him. So when Jesus died on the cross, it wasn't so much, it, 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 not to minimize this, so much the physical suffering and pain but it was the fact that he took upon himself the sins of the world as an atonement. And no one could do that unless they were perfect. You know, and this is a picture of the Old Testament when they would have a, a sacrifice for sins. It would be a, a lamb without, they say, without spot and blemish, which is a picture of the Messiah to come, Jesus. So I offer a sacrifice. And then next next year I offer another sacrifice and the next year I offer another sacrifice because I keep on sinning but here's what Jesus said about this sacrifice of himself once and for all once and for all and when he cried out on the cross the words tetelestai those words translated paid and full it is done it is finished that's an amazing thing so the perfect life was not just to say I'm perfect or a great example, it was so that he could be that atonement and that substitute for you and for me. To me, folks, there is nothing more exciting, more thrilling than that fact. Because that rescue that he accomplished, it could be done no other way. As much as I love you and you love me, we can't help each other in that way. I can't die for you. I'm just another sinner. You can't die for me. You're another sinner. We're caught in this. But this is what he does. The substitutionary atonement. 
But there's another part of this, and I, and I, I like to refer to this as uh, the great transaction. He takes upon him, he takes upon himself my sin. If I'm, I'm, I'm the sinner, all of my sin, he takes upon himself, and takes the punishment of death, dying on the cross for my sins, shedding his blood to wash away my sins. He does that as a substitute. But the second part is just as exciting. He then imputes or credits to my account his righteousness. His perfect life is now credited to my account. Does that make sense? I know it's kind of a, it's some heavy thinking here. All of my sin on him and all of his righteousness credited to me. Now, Paul explains this in in a precise language, and I'll put this scripture up here, uh, 2 Corinthians 5.21. He says, He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21. So that verse really describes what I just explained. All of my sin... He takes on himself as a substitute. All of his righteousness, perfection, is imputed or credited to my account. So this is the power. With, without, without lowering the standard, he meets it. See? I couldn't meet it. He met it. And he meets it for me. Which is, to me, the most exciting thing we'll ever hear. And what happens is, when a person believes this, you know, I've said this many times, all of the religions in, this, in the world, aside from biblical Christianity, have the same motto, do. <laughs> do this, do that, is follow the rules, do this. If you do this, this, and this, you'll have this, this, and this. It's all about doing. And true Christianity is all about done. It is done. And it was done by Christ on the cross for you taking upon your sin, imputing righteousness to you. And so <clears throat> people will sometimes argue with me and say, yeah, but if, if, if you don't have to do anything, people will just go crazy out there. <laughs> have you heard that before? If it's all about this grace, you know, if you don't have any rules, people are just going to go crazy. <clears throat> Not when you realize what happened here. So good works are really our way of expressing a thank you to God for what he's done. Why do, I, why do I do the right things? Why do I live in ways that are pleasing to God? Because I don't do it perfectly, but out of a sense of gratitude and thanksgiving to him. This is how he did it. He did not lower the standard. He did not abolish the standard. He completely met it. So my last thought that I'd like to just uh, introduce this morning is what place does the law have in your life? The Word. God's, God's Word. It, it's not the standard you've got to measure up to. In other words, I don't, like, I, I, I'm going I'm to set that out. I'm going to try to follow the Ten Commandments. So you say you shouldn't have the Ten Commandments up in your house? <laughs> uh, I want to ask how many of you have the Ten Commandments up in your house. No, I think it's a great thing to have the Ten Commandments up in your house. But just realize they've already been fulfilled. And praise God for His Son, 
who met every one of those Ten Commandments. You could not and will not. So how does, how does the Word now impact my life every day? The Apostle Paul described the law. The law was given to us, and I'm th- I want you to think Old Testament. The law was given to us to lead us to Christ, much in the way a guardian or a, uh, a school, someone taking someone to school. In other words, the law was given to you to lead you to this point where you are at the Sermon on the Mount to lead you to Christ. That's why the law is here, to lead you to Christ. And because the law can't give you life, Christ will give you life. Christ will save you from your sins. Christ will give you the Holy Spirit. Now, from that point, the law leads us along with Christ. The law before led me to Christ. Now the law leads me with Christ. And what it does is it helps me understand him, know about him, know about God, know about truth. What is wisdom? How to have our home? How to love my wife? How to respond to people in this world? And every part of the scripture is a help to me. You know, there are a couple places that you can go to. You know, one is Psalm 19. And uh, the first, uh, all of Psalm 19, and then Psalm 119. If, if someone wants to say what's what's the longest chapter in the Bible, uh, most verses would be Psalm 119. But Psalm 119, I think every single verse except three talk about the the Word and what the Scriptures can do in your life. The Scriptures will teach you and instruct you and help you and encourage you and bless you. And that's why when you memorize it and meditate on it and think about it, God works that word by his spirit in your life to cause you to grow in your walk with Christ. Here's what Jesus said in John 8, 31 and 32. He's speaking to his disciples. He said, then Jesus said to the Jews who had believed, believed him, if you continue in my word, You really are my disciples or my followers. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Isn't that interesting? You'll know the truth, and the word is truth, and the truth will set you free. Now, I have been set free by becoming a Christian and being saved. I'm free from sin and death. But I'm also free in my daily life of thinking, bad thinking that puts me in bondage. You know what I'm talking about? If there's one thing that has helped me in the last 40 years of my life more than anything else is every morning getting up and getting my head straight. Getting my head straight of what is true. Because there's a way I feel every day and there's also what I know is true. And this book has the power to transform and to change your life because of the spirit of Christ that is in you when you believe upon him. So my hope would be that every one of you here, if you were asked that question, do you know, because I think it may seem elementary, but sometimes we skip over the elementary and we never get back to it. The most important thing, if you were to die today, do you know for sure that you go to heaven to be with the Lord? Do you know for sure? You can't know. And secondly, what would you say? I think... I wondered, and I, I haven't really thought through exact words, but I think, I think, Lord, I don't deserve to be here. <laughs> There's nothing in me, but 
but I put my faith and trust in what Jesus did for me. I believe. I believe. And that's, he said, all, all you do. When it's done, you believe. And my prayer is that every single person here would have that peace and assurance in your heart and life. This is why God sent his son, that you might know that you have eternal life. But he also wants your life to be full and rich and abundant and blessed. Did you know that? As a Christian, now that you have this new life and his word and his spirit are the most significant parts of that happening. And so that's why we think about his word, meditate upon his word, go to his word, study his word. It fills our life, enriches us, and shows us the way till one day, the next stop for us is when he returns and we're with him in heaven forever in the worthiness of Jesus. That's why I love these, this, this sermon. Uh, it, it, he flips all of the scribes and Pharisees on their heads. <laughs> uh, he goes right to the heart and he gives the common people hope about the fact of the reason of why he's come. Let's bow together as we pray. Sometimes we think, Lord, what would we say if we stood before you? And I think just those words, thank you. Thank you for sending your son to rescue us. Thank you, Lord, that you did not compromise your perfect law. You did not abolish it. You did not lower the standard. You just met it perfectly. And you accomplished salvation for us by taking upon yourself our sins and giving to us your righteousness. May our lives be full of thanks and praise. And may we as your followers love your word and see it as fulfilled in Jesus and use it as a guide and a help and a hope to ourselves and to others. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.